1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 307 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast.
1: As you guys will recall, we used the last show to set the stage for the Second Battle of Winchester. As we said, Robert E. Lee planned to use the Shenandoah Valley as the route his army would take to reach the Potomac River and so it was in the valley that Dick Ewell would face his first testing as a Corps commander. That's because the Federals were known to be holding the lower valley with large garrisons at Winchester and Harper's Ferry, and with smaller garrisons at Berryville and Martinsburg.
0: As the spearhead of Lee's forces, it was Ewell's task to clear away those Yankees and open the way down the Shenandoah Valley to the Potomac River. Once the Confederates were across the Upper Potomac and into Maryland, it would be just a short march north to the Mason-Dixon line in Pennsylvania.
1: To open the way down the valley, Yule would have to capture Winchester. The town, sitting astride several important roads, was occupied by about 6,900 Federals commanded by Major General Robert Milroy, whose iron-fisted rule distressed local Virginians loyal to the Confederacy.
0: Once it became apparent that a large force of Confederates had crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains and entered the valley, Abraham Lincoln and and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck wanted Milroy to evacuate Winchester. But Halleck waited too long to issue direct orders to that effect, and as a result, by June 13th, Ewell's rebels were approaching Winchester and closing in on Robert Milroy. Ewell's
1: Corps had three divisions commanded by Major Generals Jubal Early, Robert Rhodes, and Allegheny Johnson. In addition, on June twelfth, the Cavalry Brigade of Brigadier General Albert Jenkins, which Robert E. Lee had ordered over from southwestern Virginia, joined Ewell. With Jenkins' horsemen, Yule's forces numbered about 22,000 men.
0: Yule's plan called for the divisions of Jubal Early and Allegheny Johnson to move against Winchester, while Robert Rhodes' division, along with Jenkins' cavalry, swung off to the right to sweep up the small Berryville garrison 10 miles east of Winchester. Rhodes and Jenkins would then push rapidly down the valley for Martinsburg, which was occupied by another small federal force. By sunrise on Saturday, June 13, 1863, all three of Ewell's infantry divisions and Jenkins' horsemen were in motion.
1: Many of Ewell's men were veterans of Stonewall Jackson's famous foot cavalry and, accustomed to hard marches, They had covered more than 50 miles in three days. After leaving Culpeper, they had marched toward and then over the Blue Ridge Mountains and entered the Shenandoah Valley. Dick Yule, spearheading Lee's campaign, wasted little time after entering the valley, and by late morning on June 13th, Jubal Early's and Allegheny Johnson's divisions were approaching Winchester from the south.
0: The fight for Winchester began at around noon on the 13th, a few miles south of town, as Johnson's troops pushed down the front royal road and ran into federal outposts. As more of his brigades arrived on the scene, Johnson found the well-positioned Yankees weren't inclined to give way, and so, rather than battering his way forward, he decided to wait and see if Jubal Early had any better luck.
1: For his part, though, Early ran into even stiffer opposition as he approached Winchester on the valley turnpike, so he also didn't press the matter. Meanwhile off to the east, Robert Rhodes advanced to Berryville only to discover that the 1800 Federals there had slipped away to reinforce Milroy at Winchester.
0: All in all, as the sun set that Saturday, Everything pointed toward tomorrow, June 14th, as being a day of decision.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances – shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture.
1: The primary defenses of Winchester were three forts on high ground north and west of the town, boasting two dozen cannon. Dick Ewell spent the first part of Sunday morning, June fourteenth, planning his attack on the Federals. He could see that any force attempting an assault from the south would first be scrambled by having to move through the town's streets, and then chopped up when the troops emerged onto the open ground beyond the attackers would be cruelly exposed to fire from the Federal
0: forts. After scouting the enemy defenses, Yule concluded that taking the forts might be more difficult than he had expected. As one of the Confederate soldiers put it, quote, "...we all began to feel as if we had caught the elephant, but could not tell what to do with it."
1: It was Jubal Early who discovered the key to cracking the Federal defenses. Early recognized that if he seized some undefended high ground along a ridge line north and west of his present lines and got some artillery to the spot, it would put him in a position to overlook and dominate West Fort, one of the enemy bastions.
0: Discussing the matter with Ewell, Early pointed out that the lay of the land offered him the opportunity to make a wide flanking movement, concealed from enemy observation, in order to come up to the ridge unseen. Ewell agreed and ordered Early to make it happen.
1: At about 11 a.m., Early set off with some 3,600 men and 20 guns on his eight-mile flank march. Meanwhile, Yule directed Allegheny Johnson to make a ruckus there outside of town and divert attention away from Early's movement.
0: Early's flank march worked to perfection. He was able to make the movement without being detected by the Federals, and then he positioned men and guns under the cover of the pine trees that crowned the ridge that overlooked the enemy fort across the way. While all of this was going on, the Yankees remained completely unaware of the impending threat.
1: Yule's attack began with a bang at 5 p.m. as 20 rebel cannon were rolled out from under the pine trees and opened a furious bombardment against West Fort. The fort's startled defenders tried to return fire, but their cannon were overwhelmed by the storm of Confederate shells. Observing the effect of the bombardment, Harry Hayes, whose brigade of Louisianans waited impatiently to charge the enemy works, reported the rebel artillery fire was so heavy and accurate that across the way, quote, scarcely a head was discovered above the ramparts.
0: After 45 minutes, the Confederate barrage lifted, and Hayes' Louisianans raised the rebel yell and swept forward. After crossing the couple of hundred yards of open ground between the ridge and West Fort, the hard-charging tigers clawed their way through the tangle of felled trees and branches, protecting the approaches to the enemy works, and then rushed into the fort itself.
1: South of Winchester, Dick Yule was watching all this through his field glasses. Hurrah for the Louisiana boys, he shouted. Just then a spent bullet hit him in the chest, momentarily stunning him, but doing nothing more than leaving him with a bad bruise. Dr. Hunter McGuire, the surgeon who had nursed Stonewall Jackson on his deathbed, didn't relish the idea of losing another commander on his watch, and took away Yule's crutches, thinking this would force the general to stay safely out of harm's way. But the happy, excited Yule would have none of it, and was soon stumping about again, cheering on the troops.
0: That Yule had much to be excited about was obvious, as more and more Federals could be seen breaking out the back of the fort and fleeing for their lives. Hayes' victorious Louisiana Tigers turned two captured cannon on the skedaddling Yankees to speed them on their way.
1: Darkness brought an end to the fighting and the opposing commanders took stock of their respective situations. Milroy knew that the rebels' stunning capture of West Fort had completely unhinged his defenses. Come daylight on the morning of June 15th, the Federals' hold on the other two forts would be untenable, and there was no longer any doubt in Milroy's mind that he was facing major elements of Robert E. Lee's army, which had somehow managed to slip away from under the nose of the Army of the Potomac.
0: Milroy met with his lieutenants and set the start of the evacuation for 1 a.m. that night. To speed the march and to cut down on noise that might betray the retreat, all wheeled vehicles would be left behind, wagons, ambulances, and even the artillery.
1: Yule read the situation the same as Milroy. The Confederate commander couldn't see any other options for the Yankees but to stand and fight it out with predictable results, or else retreat northward toward Martinsburg or Harper's Ferry. You will bet Milroy would pull out during the night and planned accordingly. After failing to catch the Federal's Berryville garrison, Robert Rhodes' Confederates were already on their way to Martinsburg, so that escape route was covered. But that still left Harper's Ferry, and to cut off an enemy retreat in that direction, Yule set Allegheny Johnson and his division in motion.
0: In his book on the Gettysburg Campaign, Stephen Sears points out that during the Civil War, a night action, even a night march, invariably generated vast confusion. In the pitch darkness, Johnson had to disengage from the enemy, collect his three scattered brigades, and find a way to swing around Winchester and intersect the enemy's line of retreat somewhere beyond the town. With much profane urging, he managed the task, although trailing bewildered men all across the landscape.
1: Sears continues, By four o'clock in the morning, Johnson had the beginnings of an ambush set up in a railroad cut that paralleled the turnpike near Stevenson's depot Suddenly, in the dark road, Milroy's advance guard stumbled into the flash and crash of gunfire, and the battle was on.
0: Robert Milroy, as we related in the last episode, had a great deal more to answer for than most Union soldiers if he was captured. And so after stumbling into a Confederate ambush in the darkness at Stevenson's depot, Milroy decided to do or die. He was determined, in his words, quote, to cut our way out.
1: The combat at Stevenson's depot in the early morning hours of June 15th was as vicious as it was confusing. Milroy hurled his troops against the ambushing Confederates, and it was a close in wild fight in the smoky darkness. Allegheny Johnson found himself outnumbered and in trouble until his trailing brigade finally reached the scene and tipped the scales in favor of the rebels.
0: It was first light when Milroy broke off the attempt to break through and gave the order for each man to get away as best he could, not waiting around to be taken captive by what he termed quote-unquote the rebel fiends, Milroy was among the first to leave the battlefield and head off cross-country. He eventually reached safety at Harper's Ferry. However, thousands of his men weren't so lucky.
1: With Milroy's departure, the already badly shaken Federal force collapsed and broke up in desperately fleeing fragments. Men went off in every direction, and dozens, and then hundreds, began to throw down their arms. Stonewall Jackson had won the First Battle of Winchester in May 1862, and now here in June of 1863, Second Winchester was a brilliant start to Dick Yule's tenure as Corps Commander, appearing to prove that he was, indeed, the rightful heir of the mighty Stonewall.
0: On the Federal side, Milroy lost 443 men killed and wounded, and no fewer than 4,000 captured. 2,500 Federals fell prisoner to Allegheny Johnson at Stevenson's Depot, while another 1,500 were captured by Jubal Early when his troops entered Winchester on the morning of June 15th. All of this had been achieved at the cost of just 269 Confederate casualties.
1: Second Winchester was one of the most swift, total, and bloodless Confederate victories of the entire war. Going almost unnoticed amidst all the celebration was the activity of Yule's 3rd Division, the one commanded by Robert Rhodes. On June 14th, Rhodes' men had marched virtually unchallenged through Martinsburg. The next day, they continued north for 15 miles to the Potomac River. There, Rhodes spent the following two days crossing his three brigades into Maryland.
0: A North Carolinian noted that the Potomac was, quote-unquote, knee-deep where they forded it, and that the citizens of Maryland they encountered on the other side were, quote, mixed in their sympathies, some Confederates and some Yankees.
1: Taking the point on Rhodes' advance was Albert Jenkins' cavalry brigade. On the evening of June 14th, Rhodes instructed Jenkins to press ahead the next day as far as Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Jenkins' horsemen set off at 2 a.m., and so on June fifteenth, a month to the day after Robert E. Lee first pitched his invasion plan to Jefferson Davis in Richmond, Rhodes' foot soldiers were splashing across the Potomac into Maryland, and that evening, Jenkins' cavalry, having crossed the Mason-Dixon line into the Keystone State, entered the streets of Chambersburg.
0: Jacob Hoke owned a shop in town, and watching the darkly threatening rebel horsemen from the second floor of his store, he would have been hard-pressed to find anyone to argue with him when he declared that June fifteenth, 1863, brought Chambersburg, quote, the greatest excitement which had occurred up to that time during all the history of the war.
1: Well, it was undoubtedly the greatest excitement most of the citizens of the Pennsylvania town had ever experienced, but they hadn't seen nothing yet. With Ewell having cleared the Valley of Federals and opened the way to the Potomac, with Rhodes troops splashing across the river, and with Jenkins cavalry having galloped into Chambersburg, Robert E. Lee's campaign, so far, was unfolding pretty much perfectly, And that meant war was coming to the Keystone
0: State. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Second Battle of Winchester, The Confederate Victory That Opened the Door to Gettysburg by Eric J. Wittenberg and Scott L. Mingus Sr.
1: Second Winchester is a largely forgotten part of the Gettysburg campaign, but Wittenberg and Mingus have produced an outstanding book that gives the battle the attention it deserves. We highly recommend it.
0: You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: As we wrap things up for this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Brendan, Tom, Donald, and Elizabeth.
0: And Colin, Mark, and David.
1: And Lee, and Don, and Kathy.
0: We also want to thank Greg and Gary for their donations this past week.
1: And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take
0: care.